to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Africa Rights Talk, where we'll be talking about the recent events of unrest that we saw grappling South Africa in the past few weeks. With me today is Dr. Tsepo Matlengozi from the Center for Applied Legal Studies. I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. Good morning. My name is Tsepo Matlingozi. I work at the Center for Applied Legal Studies, where I am the executive director. I also teach at the University of Bethesda, Bethesda University, where I teach social justice and human rights. I'm glad to be here. We're very glad to have you today. So basically, South Africa saw a series of violence and destruction in Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal in the last few weeks. And what started off as protests against the imprisonment and incarceration of former President Jacob Zuma on charges of contempt of court by the Constitutional Court spiraled into a week of mayhem with poorer communities and other opportunistic citizens taking to the streets to loot and burn key infrastructure. So the consequences of the unrest resulted in incalculable damages beyond financial losses, the loss of lives and livelihoods. And while it is still unclear to understand who instigated and organized the violent protests, it is clear that South Africa's longstanding history of inequality and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic provided fertile ground for the speediness and mobilization of these violent protests to take place. So in this episode, I would like to just explore South Africa's sociopolitical landscape in order to understand the violent protests, as well as to discuss the extent to which these protests threaten to undermine the judiciary and the rule of law in South Africa. We'll also try to find recommendations on what the government can do moving forward to try and offer sustainable and long-lasting solutions to address the root causes of the violence and unrest. So, can you give an explanation of South Africa's socio-political context in order for the listeners to understand the context of the protests that affected South Africa's Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal provinces? What led to the protest action? Well, it's still difficult to say what led to the protest action. We do hope that a proper inquiry will be conducted. However, we can say for sure that there were a couple of historical and contemporary factors that led to the unrest. Of course, the immediate cause was the protest organized by the faction aligned to Mr. Zuma. You will know that the ruling party, the ANC, is split into two factions. The one faction supporting Mr. Zuma, the other faction supporting Mr. Ramaphosa. So it's a, it's, a, it's a party that is in government, but it's a party that is in disarray, that is completely divided, completely dysfunctional in terms of unity of purpose, in terms of governance. So as you said in your introduction, the arrest of Mr. Zuma and you know him being sentenced to 50-month uh, sentence in jail led to his supporters organizing some protests. So it started around that as protests 
for Mr. Zuma. We can also go further and say you can tell that, you know, the instigators of that protest were intent on, 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 on undermining the rule of uh, and the, the, the authority of Mr. Ramaphosa and also the rule of law because some of those protests were illegal. They breached the COVID-19 regulations. They did not apply and get approval to march and so forth. You don't need approval to march, but they did not organize with local authorities to organize those protests. However, this quickly escalated into widespread incidences of looting in shopping malls, in Gauteng, and in KwaZulu-Natal. It is clear that the second incidences that I'm talking about, the incidences of widespread looting were not organized by Mr. Zuma's supporters. These were spontaneous, opportunistic attempts by very impoverished people to take advantage of the situation. And what is that situation? The situation is that impoverished and marginalized people can see that the ruling party and the state does not really care about them. These are people who are concerned about fighting for positions and, you know, so-called palace, you know, uh, dispute within the ANC. So people are looking at their leaders and their leaders are so much concerned about their own internal factionalism. So on the one hand, there's no leadership in society. It's a crisis of leadership. It's a crisis of authority, and thirdly, and most importantly, it's a crisis of socio-economic impoverishment. You will know that South Africa is one of the most unequal countries in the world, if not the most unequal country in the world. We know that about 40% of South Africans are unemployed. We know that during COVID, uh, since the start of the pandemic last year, 2 million people lost their jobs, more than that. We know that people who depended on informal work in, you know, working as domestic workers, working as food traders on the side of the road, working for contractors and so forth. We know that those people lost a lot of jobs because, you know, uh, for example, domestic workers, you know, they were laid off because people were, number one, working from home, but some people were scared to be infected by COVID, you know, due to commuting workers. So a lot of people lost their jobs during COVID. We know that 74% or over 70% of the youth are unemployed. That's a lot of unemployed youth. That's a lot of disaffected youth. And then lastly, we saw some statistics two weeks ago that showed that one in four South Africans went to bed hungry. So you are dealing with a very abnormal society, a society that if you just spend your time in Johannesburg and in Cape Town, you'll think South Africa is very, very prosperous. But it's a deeply, deeply unequal society. It's a society where many youth, many kids, children go to bed hungry. It's a country in which a minority of the population still control the economy, still control the share of the land and other strategic sectors of the economy. So the looting was sparked by the need to get food at home. It is not true that these lootings were 
organized, number one. It is not true that people were just selling television and fridges and other appliances as we saw on TV. That is just sensationalism. If you look properly at some of those footages, you will see old mamas and old gogos, old people, going to take, you know, a piece of meat, going to take baby formula, going to take, you know, uh, some porridge. People are hungry, and it did not help that the state terminated the COVID social relief distress fund. You will know that the state used to give about $24 per month, 350 rents per month to unemployed people to help them during COVID, which is a, it's, it's a pittance. But at least it allowed people to buy some necessities. Right. So that was terminated, you know, after several months. So literally in homes, there was no food. So that is a socio-economic context. It's a political crisis to do with lack of leadership. It's a crisis to do with impoverishment and inequality. And finally, it's a crisis of belongingness. A lot of people don't feel that they belong to this so-called new South Africa. They are pushed to the margins of this society. South Africa is celebrated all over the continent and all over the world as an example of post-conflict country. But in reality, that is not true. It's a PR exercise. It's a public relations exercise. The majority of people in this country still live almost colonial conditions. Those are some of the socio-economic contexts that led to this latest crisis. I do agree with you on so many fronts. The irony of all of this for me is that, as you mentioned in your response, you did say that there's a lack of leadership and factionalism within the ANC itself. And it goes without saying that all of these protests that eventually, um, where we eventually see the former president, Jacob Zuma, being incarcerated was as a result of state capture. So why couldn't this energy from the citizens to loot be redirected and channeled at the time when state capture was happening? Well, it is unfair to expect citizens to stop state capture. That's number one. Number two, it is unfair to say that the citizens should have directed their energies to more useful endeavors. Getting food for your children is a very useful enterprise, right? Those of us who have never gone to bed hungry or have kids crying the whole night because they don't have anything to eat, we might think looting or, you know, so-called looting or appropriation of basic stuff is a waste of energy. I disagree with that. Number two, you are quite correct to say we have witnessed a phenomenon that goes by the name of state capture. And that implies a lot of things. One of the things that it implies is deep-seated systemic corruption in the public sector. Number two, it implies that decisions are not made by properly elected officials, but they are made by influential business people who corrupt this politician. Therefore, state capture number two implies a crisis of democracy. So this is a criminal act. It is something that should be attended to by the security cluster in South Africa, the intelligence services, the police services, and the prosecution authority. They are the ones who are supposed to direct their energies to prosecuting people who are corrupt. 
That's number three. Number four, what most of our listeners don't know is that South Africa has got some of the highest rates of protests in the world, so-called social delivery protests or basic services protests. Over 2,000 such protests take place every year. These are protests where one or two impoverished communities stand up and protest against the lack of delivery of electricity, of water, of basic health care, of education services, and so forth. People are protesting in South Africa. Over 2,000 protests a year. How many days are there in a year? So you can imagine how many people are out there protesting every day. These protests are deliberately underreported. Number two, these protests are deliberately mischaracterized as protests for service delivery issues. But really, at the heart of this, people are protesting against lack of democracy at the local level. People are saying to politicians, you don't involve us in decision-making. You don't account to us. You refuse to account to us. You are not responsive when we ask questions. You are not transparent on how you use state finances, funds. And lastly, that you are corrupt. We see money disappearing. We know there is $2 billion budgeted for something for the building of a school or a clinic, but we never see this. So citizens in South Africa and non-citizens where they live in those areas are protesting every day against corruption, against state capture, against non-accountability. They do that, right? So it's, a, it's an unfair statement to say they are not directing their energies to stop this state capture. They do that. They get shot at by the police. They get refused permission to march, even though permission is not required. They get criminalized, right? They get criminal records for standing up for their constitutional rights. So impoverished people have done and are always doing the best that they can. We must ask the question, when did state capture start in South Africa? What did Mr. Mandela do about it? What did Mr. Beggy do about it? What did Mr. Zuma do about it? What did Mr. Ramaphosa do about it, right? It is a problem of the political system in South Africa, where there is a toxic relationship between big business and the state. You don't start with Mr. Zuma. It's a false narrative that state capture started with Mr. Zuma, completely false. It started long time ago. We can even go further and say there has never been a situation in South Africa where the state was not captured. You will know that White settlers came in South Africa in the 17th century, between 1652 and 1657. And you will know that colonialism then was driven by a private company, the Dutch East Indian Company. So right from the beginning of the colonizing of this country, there was always the influence of big business, the relationship between big business and the state. We know that South Africa is a very young country established by white settlers in 1910. South Africa is established in 1910 through a relationship or an agreement between four white colonies. And they make an agreement to form the Union of South Africa because of business interest to secure that 
there's no fighting as far as the economy is concerned and that there will be proper agreement for custom duties and so forth. We know that apartheid in 1948 is created to solve the poor Africana problems. We know that apartheid policies and colonial policies were written, were influenced by the mining companies, by the big agricultural farmers. So apartheid is also a relationship between big business and the state. Finally, we know that apartheid falls in South Africa, not because the ANC has won the liberation struggle, not because the apartheid settler state has been defeated, but because of the influence of big business that says, guys, the state is corrupt, the inflation is very high, South Africa is a pariah all over the world, we need to talk. So it is big business that brings the ANC and the settler state together to negotiate. There has never been a time when the state has never been captured. In 1994, what was supposed to happen was the state was supposed to be decolonized. But instead, we simply had a democratization of the state. So the roots of the state is still a colonial state. I am mentioning this long historical narration for our listeners to understand that the problems of state capture are inherent in this state that was formed in 1910, this settler state that was formed in 1910, and that state is still there. South Africa is still there, which is a settler state. Number two, I mentioned this long historical story to make it clear to our listener that the relationship between the state and big business has always been toxic, has always been corrupt. The apartheid state was very corrupt. They stole money, they embezzled funds, and so forth. We know that under Mr. Mandela, and, and under Mr. Mbeji, more precisely, a arms deal was negotiated where South Africa spent billions and billions of rents that he did not have to buy weapons that he did not need. A very corrupt endeavor. So citizens have always complained about state capture. Citizens march and protest every day against state capture. They get shot at, they get denigrated, they get criminalized. The ANC is a captured political party. Every day you hear of a minister, you hear of a senior politician of the ANC that is involved in corrupt elements. And those are just reported incidents. But it's a culture of patronage where to become a president of the ANC, Mr. Ramaphosa had to be funded to the tune of one billion by big business just to be president of the ANC. There is something wrong with this ruling party. So I think it's an unfair question to blame the citizens. It's a historical problem, number one. Number two, the citizens are doing all they can do to hold politicians accountable. They don't go to court. They don't come to the media because they don't believe in those institutions. But they use their powers to protest at the local ground. They are underreported. You will never hear about this unless you hear about this protest in the traffic news clip in, on the radio. And then lastly, there is something fundamentally rotten about the ruling party, and that's where we should start. Well, based on this conversation, it is clear to see that most of the collateral damage falls and will be suffered by poorer Black communities. How can South Africa decolonize to make sure that the nature of these protests do not have a lasting and negative impact on the Black majority, and that the democracy project reflects what the society looks like? Instead of a process of decolonization, which uh, one does it need to be convinced to understand that a country that had over 300 years of 
colonialism. Apartheid was colonialism. And who cares about apartheid? Apartheid was only, you know, less than 50 years. We don't care about that. We care about the long history of colonialism. It is interesting that in legal discourse, in legal writings, in constitutional theory, people focus on apartheid. And it's a clear agenda to make the problem of South Africa the problem of apartheid. Because once you do that, you limit the problem to problems of discrimination, to problems of failure or lack of ability to vote by black people, to freedom of movement, the ability to get a job that you qualify for. That is apartheid, but really that is not the problem of this country. As I said, you know, this country was formed in 1910 as a settler colonial state by white people, by white settlers, formed deliberately against the interests of the native population, the so-called native population. It's a colonial society, therefore you'll expect that change will mean attending to that history of colonialism. We see this history unfolding and continuing to unfold in maybe four aspects. The first aspect is, of course, colonialism means, and settler colonialism specifically it means that people come into your territory and they eventually dispossess you of your land. Well, today, black people still don't have land in South Africa. White people who are only 13% of the population own more than 70% of land. That's the first instance of the clear continuation of colonialism in this country. Number two, colonialism means that people that colonize you subjugate you economically so that they can extract cheap labor from you. So you can work for them almost as slaves, either as enslaved people or really earning little cheap labor. It is still the case today that black people are still very much impoverished. A white household earns more than six times more than a black household. In fact, my numbers are not correct. It's even more than that. So the racial, economic and income inequality still continues. That's why, you know, when my friends come from overseas or from other parts of Africa, when they go to restaurants, they only see black people working in restaurants. They see only black people working on the side of the road. They see only black people working inside people's homes as domestic workers. They get shocked and they don't see white people in those kind of jobs. So in the second place, colonialism means economic subjugation and extraction of labor. That continues in South Africa Today, number three, apartheid and colonialism means institutionalized racism, institutionalized sexism, institutionalized homophobia, institutionalized xenophobia, institutionalized ableism. You don't have to be in South Africa for too long to realize that South Africa is an incredibly racist, anti-black state, anti-black against black South Africans, but anti-black against other people who come from other parts of Africa, not foreigners who come from Europe or from America. Uh, Northern America, but black people from other parts of Africa are hated here. Institutionalized anti-blackness. That is a colonial problem. It's not a legacy. It is something that is ongoing today. And then finally, colonialism implies the subjugation of people's cultures, knowledge systems, religions, and their frame of references. Their frames of reference. You don't have to be in South Africa for too long to realize that South Africa thinks of itself as Europe. That people here think whiteness is the standard of beauty. You have to speak English with a certain accent. You have to strive to send your kids to a white school. The education system in universities, you don't even know whether you are in Africa or not because of the kind of education that is taught and the curriculum that dominates in South Africa. 
So change came in 1994, but all these colonial things that I've been mentioning are still there. There has never been a serious endeavor to decolonize this country from all those four angles, from the angle of the land question, the economic situation, the institutionalized and structural discrimination and oppression, and then lastly, you know, as far as you know, the subjugation of African ways of being in the world uh, concerned. Decolonization in the first place will mean attending to those four things. You look at South Africa's constitution, very good in terms of stipulating a comprehensive list of civil and political rights, including the right not to be discriminated against on the basis of sexual orientation. Very progressive very pioneering. It includes a wide bouquet of socio-economic rights within available resources, progressive realization, of course. But South Africa's material, the majority of people's material conditions are still the same. How do you explain that disjuncture between this constitution that makes some fair promises and the reality of degradation, marginalization, impoverishment? How do you explain that? You can't just explain that on the basis that, oh, this poor, this, this black government is just corrupt. And therefore, they're stealing people's money. If it wasn't for this stupid black government, there would have been implementation of the constitution. No, that, that, that's too simple. It is one of the factors, secondly, but it's too simple. The constitution does not mention the word apartheid. The constitution does not mention the word colonialism. In the entire text of the constitution, the name apartheid is missing. The name colonialism is missing. So what change is this constitution focused on? If you can even name the historical injustice, there has been a lot of effort put into selling this constitution globally and in other parts of the continent. People come to South Africa to study this constitution. They study the constitution, they don't study the material conditions on the ground, and they go back to their countries and say, wow, I wish my country can implement South Africa's constitution. What does implementation mean in reality? Right? So we need to attend to those questions. We need a constitution that makes it clear that we need to uphold and protect and promote socioeconomic rights, civil and political rights, and to work towards social justice. But a constitution of a historically settler colonial state must talk about reparative justice, reparations, redress, restitution. If it doesn't do that, it's a constitution that really will never be able to dismantle the fundamental problems of this country. So for the majority of people that are still confined to the underside of this so-called new South Africa. You go to the townships any day, you find a lot of people around the street, you'll think it's a holiday, but it's a normal working day, but people don't have jobs. And of course, inequality, of course, unemployment, of course, impoverishment lead to a lot of social ills, the abuse of alcohol, the abuse of cheap drugs, recreational drugs domestic violence, mental unwellness, and so forth and so forth and so forth, right? So this is how we can explain what happened last week. It's an explosion that was always going to happen. You can focus on Mr. Zuma, you can focus on state capture, you can focus on the failures of the security system, 
but South Africa was always going to explode. The following thing that I will say is that, you know, in most of the mainstream narratives of this event of the past two weeks, and even in some of our questions, we focus on the lootings, meaning that we focus on the loss of property, the theft of property, if you want to call it that. We don't focus on the systemic looting by politicians. We don't focus on the structural and normalized looting by private sector, big business, in how they evade to pay taxes, in how they underpay people, in how they price fix, they set the prices of key commodities. The systemic looting by the private sector, where the economic system is still based on colonialist relationships. You can go to any mine African communities and you look at the relationship between the mine company and the local mining community. It's a colonial relationship. That is systemic, normalized looting. This country was built on plunder, on looting by white settlers, by colonialists. We have not dealt with that. We've not dealt with that kind of looting that we've normalized. So this systemic looting by state officials, and I will use the word systemic here very deliberately, there is the structural and normalized looting by big business that we've not spoken about. Lastly, I am concerned that more than three hundred people lost their lives in the past two weeks. More than three hundred people lost their lives. But most of the focus in mainstream media and elsewhere is on the looting. What about these three hundred lives that were lost? Even the state is not making a big deal out of this. Why is black life so cheap in South Africa that three hundred people can be killed or can die and we don't have a national day of mourning? Business continues as usual. It's a very abnormal society. And I'm afraid that unless we attend to all those things that I've mentioned, land uh, hunger, economic subjugation, institutionalized discrimination, and so forth, as well as this state that is dysfunctional and colonialist, there will be another explosion. I think that is right. Huge emphasis has been placed on financial losses as opposed to the loss of lives. And my reflections on the response that you have given is that the property that was destroyed during the unrest is symbolic of the fact that the economy does not lie in the hands of the black majority and it is not enjoyed by the black majority. The response by the South African government reflects a lack of regard for the economic emancipation of the black majority. It's as if some businesses are more important than others. Looting and destruction of property did not start today. Shops owned by African migrants have been looted before and the government did nothing. And I'm glad that we have reflected on these issues. Moving on, I'd like to find out if you find the constitutional ruling to incarcerate and imprison the former president, Jacob Zuma, for contempt of court as progressive, particularly in the light of the State Capture Commission to address state capture and corruption that has crippled state institutions over the years. Yes, I mean, everyone Everyone who is summoned by the so-called Zondo Commission must go and testify. That is the law. And if you don't want to testify, the problem must do something about it within the bounds of the law. So, yeah, Mr. Zuma was 
afforded many opportunities to put his case before the constitutional court to say why he doesn't want to testify before the commission. He alleges that Judge Zondo is biased. He was given about three chances to go put all of this before the constitutional court. He didn't do so, you know, and the court then ordered him to go and testify. He still did not go and testify. Instead, he released some statements in which he called the integrity of the constitutional court into question and must all of the court, you know, uh, in, in effect. So, so yeah, the, the law was broken and the decision by the court to incarcerate him is within the bounds of the law. To what extent do we find these protests threatening to undermine the independence of the judiciary and the rule of law in South Africa? Yes. So we do know that the majority of these unrest incidences were not organized by a central organization or group of people. But there is a lot of evidence to suggest that some of these protests, especially the ones at the beginning, were organized and were instigated by people who were not happy with the arrest of Mr. Zuma. We also know that some key national strategic points, like water treatment facilities, like some post offices, like some pharmacies, were burned down. This is not the act of impoverished people looking for food. There is a certain agenda there, right? instigated, well-organized. Clearly, if you are unhappy with the arrest and incarceration of someone, you are allowed to publicly voice your displeasure through newspaper articles, through radio interviews, through protests and assembly within the confines of the law. You are allowed to do that. You are even allowed to criticize the judiciary. The judiciary is not above criticism. We academics criticize them all the time. Why can't ordinary people also, in their own language, in their own way, criticize the judiciary? It's a very unfair uh, thing to, to imply that the judiciary should not be criticized. No, it should be criticized. But the kind of protests that lead to, number one, the organized and strategic banning of key national points where you, number two, undermine COVID-19 regulations and therefore, you know, potentially contributing to the spread of this coronavirus, where number four, you publish the phone number and the address of some judges. Clearly, the agenda there is to intimidate the judiciary, and that is completely unacceptable. Intimidation, threats against the judiciary are completely unacceptable, and they must be condemned unconditionally. Unconditionally, they must be condemned, right? And if these are not condemned, you are quite right. They threaten the rule of law and they threaten constitutionalism, and that must not be allowed. As I said, if you are not happy with a certain court decision or judgment. There are so many other peaceful and legal ways to protest, but to make sure that you triple the transportation of goods where you bend down a water treatment plant, for example, where you cause chaos and confusion and you not only when people are 
you know, appropriating basic food services, you decide to bend down a mall. That is not an act of a impoverished person bending down a mall. People just went there to get, you know, food. So clearly an agenda to intimidate, to harass, and to undermine the judiciary. And that is completely unacceptable. All right. So to make sure that we are on the same page, I'd like to ask you that in your earlier response, you mentioned that the causes of the unrest were not necessarily instigated by someone, but that they were a result of gross inequalities in South Africa. And now you are stating that there is a responsible party behind the protests aimed at intimidating the judiciary. Can you reconcile those two points for the benefit of the listeners? Right from the beginning, I've said that there are historical and contemporary causes of the unrest. One of the contemporary causes was the arrest of and incarceration of Mr. Zuma and the protests that were organized against that. And then that escalated to, as I said, spontaneous appropriation of food and other basic uh, supplies from shopping centers and so forth. That is not organized. So we are dealing with a number of phenomena. And I'm saying forget about the appropriation of food and so forth, so-called looting, and focus on the evidence of, for example, the bedding down of water treatment plants, the blockage of major routes and roads to make sure that cargo does not get into the interior. That is organized. That is instigated by someone or by some people. There's no doubt about that. So we're dealing with two different phenomena here, you know, and I'm saying there is evidence that some of these other activities, and I distinguish those activities from the appropriate of food and basic supplies, so-called looting, from these other incidences where ammunition was stolen, where the N3, which is a major road in South Africa, was blocked for many days and tracks were bent down and truck drivers beaten up. I'm saying, yes, there is evidence that there are people who were well organized and who instigated this. Absolutely. I ask not to be antagonist, but it's however important to note that it is an uncommon phenomenon, especially in Africa, to find a former president being incarcerated and sentenced to prison. The very fact that he is in prison now is progressive. Principles of democracies such as rule of law do work and apply to every citizen and clearly no individual is above the law. So moving on to the next question, I'd like to find out to what extent do these protests compromise South Africa's national security from the threat of domestic and international terrorism? Yes, just to say, uh, just to repeat what I just to repeat what I said earlier that you know the the incarceration of Mr. Zuma was completely within the bounds of the law, and you know it's something that we don't see quite often in in Africa. So so yeah, there's something to be said about that. I, I completely agree with you. And number two. And we're still talking about the first phenomenon that, you know, uh, uh, forget about the wanton and widespread uh, so-called looting and focus on these other activities that I've mentioned. Let's stick to that, you know, the, the clearly organized, instigated sabotage efforts. 
right? They do undermine, they do expose South Africa to threats of domestic and foreign terrorism. That's number one. That is clearly the case because it exposed, number two, the complete dysfunctionality of South Africa's intelligence services that you have a scenario where a former president who is very powerful is about to be incarcerated. But where is the intelligence analysis to say what might happen and how do we prevent this? We have not seen that. So the intelligence service in South Africa has been exposed to be functional and dysfunctional. Functional in the sense that we do know now that some of the intelligence operatives are loyal to Mr. Zuma and some of them are loyal to the incumbent faction. Number three, these incidences have exposed the lack of coherence and unity in the security cluster in the cabinet of South Africa. So you've got a situation where the intelligence minister says, no, I did give a report to the minister of police. Minister of police says, no, you are lying. You never gave me this report. You've got a situation where the president says, what happened here was an attempted insurrection or an attempted coup. Even a situation where the minister of defense said, no, 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 no. We can't characterize this as an attempted coup. You know, and then later on, you know, after realizing that she has contradicted the president, the minister of defense, said, no, 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 I agree with the president. It is an attempted insurrection. You've got the acting minister in the presidency saying that, you know, uh, uh, ministers must stop fighting uh, in public, otherwise they will be disciplined. You know, tough talk from the acting uh, minister in the presidency. So it does expose, if we are terrorists, you look at these people, you say, these people are disorganized. These people are dysfunctional. I can do what I want to do here. There is a crisis of leadership. It's a crisis of governance. It's a crisis of coherence. So it is not the unrest that exposed South Africa to terrorism. It's a response to that that shows that the state is really the security cluster is not fit for purpose and that there should be a fundamental restructuring of the security cluster. The intelligence services, the you know police services, the Ministry of Defense, everywhere. There must be a fundamental restructuring of the security cluster. And then lastly, there's a reason why some of us are calling for a independent comprehensive commission of inquiry. Number one, to answer these questions that we, you and I have been debating, you know, where clearly there was some organized activity, but secondly, you know, impoverished people also, you know, finally exploding. Number two, a commission of inquiry to into what did the intelligence services know? What did they do? What was the response of the minister of police, you know, there were malls and shipping centers that, you know, where there was uh, looting for 48 hours. There were big warehouses in KwaZulu-Natal where there was looting for 48 hours. Where was the police? Why did they look away? And then lastly, a commission of inquiry to end to the death of more than 300 people. Who are these people who died? Or because they are poor black people, they don't matter. What is their names? How did they die? Some of them died in stampede. Some of them were killed by people who were told to protect malls and were told to 
protect our communities. In Durban, in Phoenix, we have instances where African black people were killed allegedly by Indian people, revealing historical, you know, racial tensions between people of Indian descent and people of African descent in Kwazulu-Natal. Racism at the heart of this. So we really need a complete commission of inquiry to make sure that, you know, we respond to all these questions. I like that you mentioned the Phoenix massacre because that leads to my next question. And uh, I also like that you talked about responses and what the government should do in order to try and understand all of this that has been going on. So the Bill of Rights in South Africa's constitution affirms the democratic values of human dignity, equality and freedom. And reports on the Phoenix massacre seem to be exposing a long-standing battle of racism and xenophobia that South Africa has been fighting most as vigilante justice. However, the only difference that we see here is that we see a more evident conflict between Black South Africans and Indian South Africans. What do you think should be done to address this? And by extension, I would also like to find out what can be done to address the socioeconomic inequalities that have been grappling South Africa for a long time and that have eventually led to this kind of unrest. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are two questions. There's the one on, on the killings in Phoenix in Devon and the next one on the socioeconomic situation. On the first question, there must be a clear independent investigation and prosecution of those that killed people in Phoenix. There must be, alongside the prosecution process, a process of inquiring into how many people exactly were killed in Phoenix, under in which circumstances were, were, were they killed, what happened, who are they. So we need that inquiry. And then thirdly, more fundamentally, we need a process that attends to the racist problem in Phoenix. It's a long-standing complaint by African people in Devon that they are mistreated and they are degraded by their Indian counterparts. It's a complaint. How widespread is it? How true is it? That needs to be investigated. Under Mr. Mandela, people also complained about this. And Mr. Mandela shut down the debate. <laughs> On, on, on this question where people are complaining about racism, Mr. Mandela simply, you know, shut down the debate and swept it under the carpet, frankly speaking. We know that in 1949, this so-called racial tension culminated in widespread uh, racial riots where a lot of people were killed. Nothing was really concretely done about that. People have been living together. People have been living in harmony. But clearly we can't discount the fact that there is racial tension there. So I'm saying clear process of prosecution and inquiry into what happened. And then thirdly, a process that really attends to this historical problem. What is at the heart of this racism? Is it simply socioeconomic and therefore exploitation and therefore oppression because other people are, are not as economically well off as some of our Indian counterparts? So that's number one. Going forward in terms of, yes, at the heart of the majority 
overwhelming majority of the instances of unrest is a socio-economic problem. We've been saying this all along, that South Africa will explode one day and people will say, no, you are being alarmist. But we say, how is it possible that you can have a country that is so divided, where people here in Johannesburg, in Alexander, live under appalling conditions. But when they look across, they see Sentin, which is the richest square mile uh, you know, place in Africa. Tall buildings shiny buildings. You know, you think people will just allow that to continue where people see politicians getting away with a lot of corruption, where there's no consequences really for corruption, looting on a daily basis. Why can't I loot when politicians are allowed to loot? Where there's a culture of impunity from apartheid, where apartheid killers and colonial killers were never prosecuted, meaning that, you know, the life of a black person is still deemed cheap, that you don't prosecute clear cases of murder by apartheid, you know, and colonial generals. So a culture of impunity. So politicians would say stupid things like, why do you want to prosecute me for stealing two million rands when you failed to prosecute that white guy who killed our forefathers and he's still alive and he's still living, you know, flesh life? Why do you care about two million when you have you know, you've allowed white people to get away with murder, so to speak. A culture of impunity. We need to attend to that. People see this and people are getting angrier and angrier and angrier. We see this anger manifesting at homes with high rates of domestic violence, alcohol abuse. We see a lot of townships where the youth have given up and they've resorted to the use of cheap drugs because they're so disaffected and so dispirited and, you know, involved in petty crimes. We see this manifesting in the occasional attacks on non-nationals. I'm saying occasional, but really it is almost normalized that non-nationals in South Africa, poor people will attack those poor people claiming that they're taking their jobs or they're establishing you know, shops within their territory, etc., etc. That is xenophobia. How do we prevent that kind of xenophobia which has its roots in impoverished people taking out their frustration on other impoverished people from other parts of the country? I mean, how can you say people are taking your jobs when there are no jobs? I mean, that's insane. But you can dismiss it simply as xenophobia without attending to the socioeconomic issue and finally, I mean, this country where there's over 70% of the youth that is unemployed, 40% of the people unemployed, where almost 50% of the population live below the poverty line, almost 50%. One in four children going to bed hungry. These are very good conditions and a recipe for a disaster for an explosion. The state must attend to this. They must attend to this by number one, making sure that every unemployed person has got a basic income from the state. We are talking here about the universal basic income grant. This will allow people to have hope. This will allow people to use that little money to go look for jobs, to be enterprising, and so forth. And this will rebuild the trust between the state and citizens. Here is a state that cares about us. That doesn't blame us for our unemployment and say these people are lazy. No, there are no jobs. So a basic income grant will be a process of starting to build a social compact between the state 
and citizens. Number two, all incidences of corruption, of looting in the public sector, in the private sector, must be clearly, transparently, and publicly investigated and prosecuted, including people who are part of Mr. Ramaphosa's faction. Fourthly, there must be a radical redistribution of the economy to make sure that historical justice is finally done in the area of land, the economy, in jobs, and so forth and so forth and so forth. So there must be a radical restructuring of the economy. This capitalist, neoliberal, colonialist economy, very sexist economy, does not work. It does not work. You can't just try to solve this by a constitution that gives people social economic rights. No. You know, that constitution is immediately undercut by neoliberal budget planning and the microeconomic policy, austerity. So we need to stop and say enough is enough. We need a social compact where as a society we say, how do we build a fair and humane society? Not a society where white people live like, you know, they're in New Zealand or UK, where the majority of people live like, you know, they're in Bolivia or other parts of the world. If you look at some of the statistics, it's insane. White people must come to the party. White people is not enough for them to just blame the government. What are they doing as white people to give up some of the privileges. That's a hard conversation that we need to have here in this country if we are to solve this economic problem. The universal basic grant, income grant is a starting point, but the long-term solution to building a humane Ubuntu society is a fundamental redistribution of the economy of South Africa. Thank you very much. I've got so many questions to ask you, but because of time, I think we'll end the conversation here for today. Would you like to give your concluding remarks? My concluding remarks is to say, first of all, condolences to the families and friends and loved ones of people that passed on. I think we have not done enough to, to pay our sincere condolences to those people. That's the first starting point. We, we are, I want to pass my condolences to those people. I want to salute people who are involved in trying to clean up you know, some of the damages that were done in malls so people can return to jobs. We can't denigrate those efforts. You have to salute those citizens. Number three, you know, to say that this is exposed the failures and the dysfunctionality of our security cluster. And my hope is that this spark a serious process of both introspection by the security cluster, some reshuffling and firing of some ministers and some officials, and finally a restructuring of the intelligence services, the Ministry of Police, uh, and so forth. The fourth thing to say is to say that the criminalization of impoverishment is not a solution. More than 2,000 people have been arrested. What are you going to do with those people? Yeah, these are people who are very impoverished. Are you going to give them a criminal record such that they can apply for jobs in the future? If they can apply for jobs in the future, what should they do? And, you know, putting them in jail when there's overcrowding, when we are still, you know, in a pandemic, what does it achieve? So the more the securitization response, 
it's a mistake to criminalize impoverished people. And then lastly, I hope this sparks a sincere and honest conversation about institutionalized racism, institutionalized homophobia, institutionalized xenophobia, institutionalized sexism and patriarchy, and institutionalized ableism. This society is still very much a colonial society, right? And for our listeners in Africa, in other parts of Africa, I hope that what has happened has opened your eyes to the reality of this country. I think most of us who go and conduct workshops in other parts of Africa, sometimes we've been guilty of lying, (coughs) of portraying a false narrative about this country, where we don't talk about racism where we talk about the legacy of apartheid, when there's no legacy, it's intergenerational. This society is still very much colonialist, you know, how we speak about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was a failure. I hope this lessons that indicates that, you know, to the rest of the continent, that South Africa is a post-colonial country, which is very much neo-colonialist, which has failed to have a serious conversation about some of its deep-seated problems and this this was caused by a lot of things, including the the sanctifying of Mr. Mandela, for example, as as a messiah. When Mr. Mandela was very good, but Mr. Mandela also, you know, did not allow us to have some deep and serious conversations. Right when the TRC was a failure, where the constitution is very good, but the constitution is not fit for purpose for a colonialist society. So, and I hope these are lessons that should not be repeated in other parts of Africa. Thank you very much. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.